Hello, my name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions. And I'm Proven Paradox, a guy with a lot of questions. And you're listening to Bright on Buddhism, a podcast where we discuss East Asian Buddhism, answering listener-submitted questions from listeners just like you, and introducing concepts of Buddhism that you may or may not be familiar with in a casual, conversational setting. Enjoy. Here, is there such a thing as altruism? What do you mean? I am not sure I believe that there is such a thing as true altruism. There is no one out there who does good fully for the sake of good. Good always comes back around to the do-gooder somehow. Take karma, for example. Each action begets good retribution. Even if that person does not know it consciously, they know it unconsciously. On a very simple level, they get the joy of doing good. In a more complex way, they get the merit of doing good. Thus, how can they truly be considered altruistic? The way to be truly selfless is to realize the truth of non-self. If one sheds a concept of self, if self falls completely away, there is no way that one would ever act for the sake of themselves, for the sake of others, or for the sake of what is given or what is taken. But the Buddha says that nobody has a self, so does that mean... All of us are truly altruistic by nature? I am skeptical. Of course not. Delusions are powerful, karmic things. Delusion of self is self-replicating. It prevents us from true altruism. It appears then that selflessness is non-selflessness. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Bright on Buddhism. This week, we will be doing a deep dive on one of the important figures in Buddhism, the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara. Avalokiteshvara is the Sanskrit name, Guanyin is the Chinese name, and Kanon is the Japanese name. Who is this Bodhisattva? What are some of the stories or doctrines about them? What sort of devotional texts and rituals are there for them? We hope you enjoy so, the big overarching question, who is Avalokiteshvara? Avalokiteshvara is without a doubt the most popular bodhisattva in all of East Asian Buddhism. There are more statues, more images, and more prayers for them than any other bodhisattva. Avalokiteshvara and all of his other names translate to hearer of the cries of the world. This should give you some indication as to what his function in the world of Buddhism is. They are the bodhisattva of compassion, loving-kindness, and pity. These three things are very critical to the bodhisattva path, but that is not to say that Samantabhadra or Kasitagarbha or other bodhisattvas are not compassionate and kind, but that Avalokiteshvara is so known for that that he is often compared to the Mother Mary in Christianity. But this type of comparison should be employed very carefully. It is true that there are female figures of compassion and motherhood in many different religions, but that does not mean that all the religions are related, or that they're connected historically, or that they share some common essence. In fact, I think that there are certain commonalities that arise in religion because religion arises out of humans, and humans are all of a common nature, and thus we use similar tools to solve similar problems, such as a mother-savior figure to help us feel like we're being nurtured and cared for and looked over in a divine sense. Avalokiteshvara's bodhisattva vows are very typical of the other bodhisattvas. These vows are constantly in the format, if X, Y, and Z is true, may I not attain Buddhahood. 
these bodhisattva vows are very important to the Mahayana path and scripture. I think that we've mentioned them once before. All bodhisattvas make such vows that often deal with saving sentient beings, creating a Buddha realm, and things like that. And then after that, they become Buddhas. All those vows are fulfilled. Everything that they said, if X, Y, and Z is true, may I not attain Buddhahood, all those things go away. Avalokiteshvara has vowed that if there are any sentient beings suffering from the obstacles, from unwholesome mind states, from any suffering at all, may they not attain Buddhahood. Avalokiteshvara vows to help people to better rebirths and to rescue them from any crisis or catastrophe that they may be faced with. In India, Avalokiteshvara is depicted as a man in imagery and statuary, but in China, under the name of Guanyin, she is depicted as a woman, and in Japan, as Kanon, they are a genderless or gender-ambiguous figure. There are two things going on here that can explain this change in the demonstration or the depiction of Avalokiteshvara. The primary thing is that when Buddhism arrived in China, there were already many pantheons of local Chinese deities that were already there that predated Buddhism. And then historically, when Buddhism travels, it often takes up local deities and it turns them into bodhisattvas or other important characters. This is evidenced by the fact that there are Hindu gods and Hindu creatures in Buddhism. Um, as well as Chinese gods and Chinese creatures, and Japanese gods, Japanese creatures, Korean gods and Korean creatures. Buddhism has a very wonderful syncretic nature in that it will mix up with a lot of religions everywhere it goes, a lot of indigenous religions. That's because it doesn't have a doctrine of exclusivity, and those who bring it with them don't necessarily bring it in the sense that they want to convert or change who they show up with, who they bring the religion to. So, that being the case, the deity in China who was closest to Avalokiteshvara in terms of representation was a female, and so Guanyin became a female in statuary and in imagery. The second thing that's going on here is that according to the Lotus Sutra and many other texts, bodhisattvas are said to have the ability to arise in the world in any form, as long as it is what is necessary to alleviate the suffering of someone who calls out to them. That form can be male, female, Buddha, demon, king, slave, dragon, animal, hungry ghost, anything. They can arise in whatever form is best for the sake of enlightening and saving sentient beings. Thus, Kanon is a reflection of the ability of a bodhisattva to be anything, anytime, according to the needs of someone who is suffering. I want to zoom in into one of Avalokiteshvara's domains that we talked about earlier, and that's pity. Is pity considered a good quality in buddhism i'm wondering if maybe there's a translation issue here perhaps or if there's some misconception in how i think of pity but that's not something i would usually ascribe to being a meritous quality that's a good catch you've been learning a lot that actually is a translation issue the japanese term to which that refers is jihi and this is actually something that's more like empathy to suffering or awareness ah. of the awareness of the bitterness and suffering of all things not so much that you are in it and that you are suffering so badly yourself but so that you have a complete and full understanding and knowledge of that suffering and all of the bad things about it so it's it's more like 
empathy born of compassion that leads to a desire to save, if that makes sense. Okay, that is a meritous quality. Exactly. So, yeah, okay, that makes sense now. So what are some stories about Ablokitosphara slash Guanyin slash Kanon? There are a lot of different scriptures and sutras and commentaries, devotional texts, even cults that deal with Kanon, Guanyin, Avalokiteshvara. A lot of these center around Avalokiteshvara saving somebody or doing something that rescues somebody, preferably through means of self-sacrifice. So before we get into that, we should talk about how Kanon traditionally arises in the world. Obviously, the doctrine holds that there are infinite forms, but just for the sake of recitation and understanding and rhetorically demonstrating that there are infinite forms, Kanon is listed out in the texts to have 33 forms. These are not only figures that Kanon can arise as, such as animals, demons, and whatever, but also in poses and with companions and with props. For example, there is a form of Kanon where he, she, they, is riding a dragon or holding a bowl of pure water that can heal any ailment or cure any thirst. And these forms all factor into local legends and myths all over East Asia. That being said, there are tons and tons of stories and myths about Kanon. One of them is even related to a tattoo sleeve that I actually have on my arm. In the traditional Japanese Irizumi style, the koi fish swimming up the waterfall is typically employed as a visual motif. And there's a legend that there is this mythical waterfall in China that's incredibly high up at the headwaters of, of a mythical river. And at the top of that waterfall is a gate that's called the Dragon's Gate. And Guan Yin is up at the top guarding that gate in one of his forms, her forms, their forms, with a dragon companion. And if the koi fish show the unwavering determination and gall that it takes to swim upstream up an impossibly high waterfall, then Guan Yin, riding a dragon, will appear to them and transform them into a dragon. I should mention that in East Asian mythology, dragons don't steal women and hoard wealth like in European mythology. Instead, they're actually wise, powerful, strong, and cunning. They are part of the realm of animals, but you might say they are close to the top of the realm of animals, just like perhaps monks and renunciants are thought of in the Buddhist cosmology as being at the top of the realm of humans. Um, we've seen this before, actually, in the sutras where someone who has achieved great learning is called the noblest of all two-legged beings, meaning that they're the noblest of all human beings. In East Asian Buddhism as well, all Buddhas and many bodhisattvas have a Buddha realm, or a pure land. These realms are kind of weird. They occupy a weird place in the Buddhist cosmology. So I should mention they are still in samsara but they are not any of the normal six or ten realms that we've talked about before. They are these lands where you are immediately born as a bodhisattva, and you sit and listen to the Buddha or bodhisattva of that realm preach the Dharma to you. Then, when you pass away in that realm, after an immeasurably long life, you automatically become a Buddha. There's a lot of ritual and prayer all over East Asia that deals with uh, trying to be born in that pure land because it's not nirvana and therefore it's easier to get to than nirvana. Um, Kanon's pure land in particular is called uh, Potalaka in Sanskrit, or uh, Luojia Shan in Chinese, or Fudaraku-san in Japanese. 
this essentially translates to Mount Brilliant in each language. Um, this Pure Land is thought of as a beautiful island paradise in the Indian Ocean, where you're reborn as a bodhisattva with golden skin and a perfect body, and you hear Avalokiteshvara preach the Dharma to you until you die, at which point you enter into your final nirvana and you're a fully realized Buddha. There are lots of other different Pure Lands that are not island mountain paradises. Uh, for example, the most popular Pure Land in Japan is the Pure Land of Amitabha, who is known as Amida in Japanese. And his pure land is quite a bit like the Midwest. It's completely flat. There's some trees and stuff, but it's completely flat. And unlike the Midwest, there are only men there. You are only able to be reborn there as a man. And you hear Amida preach the Dharma to you. And there's also musicians. Um, incidentally, I believe that Guanyin is also in that pure land. Kanon is in that pure land, joined by Samantabhadra, who is known as... Fugen in Japan. And um, altogether, they have these massive bodies and they play musical instruments and they preach the Dharma to you. And you're sitting on a lotus flower and it's all supposed to be very beautiful. I think of it as a, as perhaps a mythologization of what Nirvana is supposed to be like. This is an idea that I got from one of my professors who studies Pure Land Buddhism in great depth. But Kanon has his own um, Pure Land. And there are lots of different cults of Kanon and Avalokiteshvara and Guanyin who employ different means of trying to be reborn there so that they can be devoted to and learn from the bodhisattva of kindness, compassion, pity, etc. We're going to have to do a full episode sometime about these pure lands because I'm curious about how the doctrines say you're supposed to get there. It sounds like there's a lot of different ways. It's very interesting, actually, because it completely, as I've mentioned, turns over the six or ten realms. Because this pure land is not, you know, the realm of gods, jealous gods, humans, animals, hungry ghosts, or demons. And it's not the realm of the Buddhas, Pratyeka Buddhas, or Shravakas. It's something completely different. And in that regard, I think it has a lot more freedom of interpretation. There are those that think if you look in a particular direction, it's actually out there and you can go to it. And there's those that think that you can make this land into a pure land, any pure land, or a specific pure land. And there are those that think that you can go there in your mind. And when you do, it's the exact same as being reborn there. So there's lots of different interpretations of it because it has this weird liminal position in between samsara and nirvana in the cosmology. Yeah, that's something that I want to talk about a lot more in detail at some point. But for now, we're talking about Avalokiteshvara. So what sort of devotional texts slash rituals are there for Avalokiteshvara slash Guanyin slash Kanon? Avalokiteshvara comes up in many, many texts and is very popular. In terms of devotional texts, the Heart Sutra can be thought of as a prayer to Guanyin and is often recited as such. We will read and discuss this text in its entirety, but essentially it procedurally empties out the basic teachings of the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, and even the Buddha himself. And when I say it empties those out, it applies the universal doctrine of emptiness to them to say that the Four Noble Truths are not permanent, they don't have a capital S self, they're not unchanging, they are of the same nature as anything else in samsara. 
And the Buddha himself even falls under that category. This falls under what is called the perfection of wisdom literature or the prajna paramita literature, all teaching that emptiness and non-dualism are the way to come to a greater perfection of your understanding and a greater understanding of what wisdom really is and how to become enlightened that way. But this Heart Sutra declares that all of those are empty of inherent, substantial, unchanging nature. And so in that way, it's not only a discourse on emptiness, but a prayer to emptiness itself. And in the text, Guan Yin, or Avalokiteshvara, is mentioned by name as exploring the depths of the perfections of wisdom. And so the text is, it reads as though Guan Yin herself, Avalokiteshvara himself, gave us this knowledge while he was doing the meditating for us. It's a very interesting text, and I look forward to reading it and discussing it together. The Lotus Sutra also has an entire chapter dedicated to Guan Yin. In this chapter, Guan Yin, or Avalokiteshvara, is said to have the power to arise in the world as all of the things that we have mentioned and more. This is where that doctrine comes from. Uh, this text exists on its own meaning this chapter, where Avalokiteshvara is discussed in great detail, exists on its own as a sutra that is outside of the Lotus Sutra. As we'll discuss in the future, the Lotus Sutra is a very weird type of sutra in terms of the history of the text, the lifetime of the text. It's a compilation of many different texts, all related by similar themes, and each text has been edited to fit into one larger, grand, complete Lotus Sutra. Either way, the function of the Avalokiteshvara chapter is to further collapse the distinction between a bodhisattva and a Buddha. In this chapter, they say that anybody who is in any unpleasant or bad situation can call out Avalokiteshvara's name, and he will show up in whatever form is necessary to save that person. To do that, Avalokiteshvara can even appear as a Buddha. He can appear as a demon, a woman, a monk, an animal, a hungry ghost, anything but also as a Buddha. This begs an important question about the nature of bodhisattvahood and Buddhahood. If Avalokiteshvara can appear as a fully realized, fully enlightened Buddha, does that not mean that Avalokiteshvara is one? Does that not mean that he has the power to demonstrate himself as one because he is one? People who are not Superman cannot be Superman just by dressing up. That means that they have to be Superman. So that's one reading of the text is that a bodhisattva, therefore, is actually a Buddha. And that's my reading of the text as well, is that Avalokiteshvara is a bodhisattva and a Buddha, a bodhisattva and a Buddha being similar or the same in this case. And in later Mahayana Buddhism, in the rituals and in the texts, there is no distinction applied between bodhisattvas and Buddhas. As we've talked about, they value the bodhisattva path a lot more than other schools of Buddhism. In terms of rituals, there are rituals of offerings, pilgrimages, and veneration that are done for Avalokiteshvara all throughout East Asia. These rituals are highly localized, and therefore there is way too much to discuss here. What is primarily interesting about Kanon is how they are the bodhisattva of compassion, loving kindness, and pity, and that is always, always, always conflated with that whatever figure fills that position in whatever local tradition that Buddhism has showed up in. There are lots of Chinese traditions that deal with this, Korean traditions and Japanese traditions that break down the distinction between whatever local god they have that represents that and Avalokiteshvara himself. 
And I think that, like we've talked about before, that speaks to the application of the teaching that a bodhisattva can arise in the world as anything for any reason, as long as it is to save a sentient being or all sentient beings. We hope you enjoyed learning about the most popular bodhisattva in all of East Asian Buddhism. Join us next week where we will discuss the Buddhist philosophy of language, speech, and words. What is that philosophy? What are some of the doctrines surrounding speech, language, and words? How do they play out in ritual and practice? We hope to see you there. Thanks for listening. Thank you very much. My name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions and the voice of Hearer. And I'm Docs, editor, question asker, and voice of Hermit. And this has been Bright on Buddhism. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, or if you have a question you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please consider leaving a comment or review, subscribing, or joining us on social media. Email us at bright.on.buddhism at gmail.com. Tweet us at brightbuddhism. And join us on our Discord server, The Hidden Sangha, link in description. As always, citations and resources for this episode can be found in the show notes. Thank you. See you next time. Thank you very much.